The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and of the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zolzdorf and another podcast. Today we welcome as our guest Peter Kwasniewski. He's offered us some wonderful books on liturgy, and I'm going to read a passage from one of his finest. Uh, We'll also hear later on another edition of Stories of Don Camillo, The Little World of Don Camillo. Peter Kwasniewski is a longtime instructor at Wyoming Catholic College. He's widely traveled and gives lots of conferences. He writes books. He's a frequent contributor on websites. Uh, his offerings are always thought-provoking, and because his opinions virtually um, always echo and even reflect my own, he is virtually always right. And as the saying goes, when you are right, you can't be wrong. Um, Peter has a wonderful book called Noble Beauty, Transcendent Holiness, Why the Modern Age Needs the Mass of Ages. And as a a bonus, there is a foreword by the marvelous uh, German writer Martin Mosebach. Uh, This is a must-have book, and it's something that you should try to put into the hands of priests and seminarians everywhere. Buy several copies and hand them out. Um, I think that will reap great fruit down the way. Uh, Today I'm going to read uh, fascinating uh, and just a little bit provocative bit from a chapter on varying views of liturgy and prayer. It'll rapidly become clear who the protagonists are in these two phases. first uh, the Benedictines and then Jesuits, and um, also on those who emphasize the, shall we say, the stable and the transcendent, and on the other hand, the constantly shifting and maybe a greater emphasis on immanentism. Uh, So let's hear some of um, my reading of this great section in Peter's book. In my reading, alas, I have to leave aside the footnotes It's really a shame because the footnotes are very good, but it's hard to read texts when you have extended footnotes. You'll just have to get the book and read them and enjoy them yourself. They're very much worthwhile, uh, and they can be at times uh, quite entertaining. Let's hear now what uh, Peter Kwasniewski has to say.
In the early 20th century, certain Benedictines and Jesuits conducted a vigorous debate over the centrality of the liturgy in the Christian life, and more particularly in the life of prayer. Faithful to their age-old emphasis on the Opus Dei, the sons of St. Benedict promoted the line of St. Pius X, that the sacred liturgy is the font and apex of the Christian life, the point of departure for all of the Church's pastoral activity, and the goal in which her entire mission culminates. The communal liturgy of the Church, ripened over centuries of faith, is the highest expression of the love and wisdom of the Holy Spirit shared between Jesus Christ and His Immaculate Bride. One might say that the Spirit of Truth is at home in the liturgy, which is the most visible and most authoritative manifestation of His invisible presence among us. Perhaps no one has more perfectly expressed this vision than Dom Paul de Latte, 1848-1937, third abbot of Solem. Quote, All particular liturgies center round are merged in and draw their strength from the collective liturgy of that great organism, the Church, which is the perfect man and fullness of Christ. The whole life of the Church expresses and unfolds itself in her liturgy. All the relations of creatures with God here find their principle and their consummation. By the very acts that in the individual, as in the whole mass, realize union with God, the liturgy pays him all honor and glory. In it, the Holy Spirit has achieved the concentration, eternalization, and diffusion throughout the whole body of Christ of the unchangeable fullness of the act of redemption, all the spiritual riches of the Church in the past, in the present, and in eternity. End quote. In contrast, the sons of St. Ignatius, heirs of far-flung missions, often undertaken by solitary priests, presented the liturgy as one among many tools useful for personal spiritual growth, with private meditation having a certain pride of place. One seeks and finds the Holy Spirit in the individual practice of the discernment of spirits, done, of course, within the framework of Catholic doctrine and under the guidance of the hierarchy, but still concentrating on the pursuit of one's own vocation in the world, to which formal public prayer is a useful adjunct, more or less dispensable depending on the circumstances. On this view, the truth into which the Spirit leads us is less the ontological splendor of truth found in the liturgy and requiring our conformity with it, as it is the propositional truth of dogmatic statements and the existential truth of correspondence between a Christian and his calling. Illuminating in their frankness, the publications and correspondence associated with this debate disclose the principles underlying each side. Nor can there be any doubt that both views have much to commend them. We cannot say that one or the other is simply mistaken. At the same time, there is a trend or tendency in the Jesuit approach, an incipient individualism and subtle subjectivism, that was to bear bitter fruit in the passage of time. Pope Pius XII attempted to adjudicate the dispute in Mediator Dei, 
by acknowledging the truths held by both schools while fundamentally siding with the Benedictine framework of his predecessors, a judgment that was to linger in Sacrosanctum Concilium, whose general liturgical theology is Benedictine. Hence, we may safely say, as a matter of history, that the armies engaged, the battle was fought, and the Pio-Benedictine vision officially prevailed. But what about the later history, the post-Mediator Dei period, from 1948 to 1970, when the liturgical movement became radicalized and reform expanded and accelerated from minor matters to major ones, culminating in the Bunini liturgy. This period exhibits a strange irony. Apparently, the Benedictines won across the board because everyone during and after the council, beginning with the concilium reformers themselves, talks about liturgy as if it is the be-all and end-all of Catholic prayer, at times as if it is the only kind of prayer Catholics have. Yet within this assumption, what has triumphed is a creative, devotional, sentimental, largely subjective notion of liturgy, a utilitarian and custom-designed approach that is utterly contrary to the Benedictine vision of liturgy as objective, formal, stable, and received, an external standard to which we are subject, and to which private devotions and personal preferences are to be subordinated. Speaking of the ripple-down effects of the subjectivism of Kenshin philosophy, Father Chad Ripperger observes, quote, We often see this immanentization today. People expect the liturgy to conform to their emotional states rather than conforming themselves to an objective cult which in turn conforms itself to God. Close quote. The searing words of Laszlo Dobje come to mind, quote, the very fact that the bulk of the clergy protests with intense emotions against this return to ad orientum worship shows its serious necessity. The principal motivation behind the protest is not the pastoral care of the faithful, but of the psychological distress of the priest. I read an eye-opening interview with a priest, fairly well-known liturgist, who dismissed the Tridentine Mass as a kind of idolatry because of the impersonal ritualism of it, the exalted cultivation of form. Everyone has to be so focused on the right that they become idolaters of it, he opined. Some clergy, accustomed to the ever-changing meaningfulness of modern liturgy, with its personal touches and accessibility and relevance, feel chilled by the objectivity and otherness of formal worship in Latin, and the way its ministers and assistants yield their individuality and idiosyncrasies to the right. In this way, they do not seem to recognize the liturgy as a living icon of Christ through which we touch him and are touched by him, at once embracing every age of his mystical body and bypassing time in the immediacy of his holy presence. Like a fantastical beast compounded of two animals, the legacy of the post-conciliar reform fuses a benediction insistence on the primacy of liturgy with a Jesuitized reconception of liturgy as collective private devotion. 
It is as if new Jesuit wine has been poured into old Benedictine wineskins, causing the one to rupture and the other to run waste. The moment of triumph was the moment of disaster, as the very notion of a rite, a formalized, ritualized act of common worship based on a common orthodox tradition, gave way to a pluralistic, relaxed, malleable, and privatized praxis of variations on a more or less Catholic theme. Quote, Behold, the hour cometh, and it is now come, that you shall be scattered every nation to his own, and shall leave me alone. John sixteen thirty two. The Concilium's exploitation of Sacrosanctum Concilium left us with a volatile mixture that makes genuine reform today much more difficult. Perhaps the most ironic twist in this complicated debate is the contrast between Pope Francis and his predecessor. Although not a Benedictine by profession, Benedict XVI closely identified throughout his career with the monastic vision of the all-pervasive centrality of the sacred liturgy, where God and man meet most profoundly in praise and in communion, expressing and accomplishing the unity of the mystical body of Christ. At his first general audience in April 2005, Ratzinger explained that he had chosen the name Benedict as an homage not only to the Pope of Peace, Benedict XV, but also, and it would seem principally, to the father of Western monasticism, co-patron of Europe, and architect of Christian civilization. With the first Jesuit and overseas pope, on the other hand, we have a pastor who appears to hold those modern Jesuit views that blessed Columba Marmion and other Benedictines, in the name of fidelity to St. Pius X, so stalwartly resisted in the first half of the 20th century, and that Ratzinger Benedict himself patiently opposed in his writings and magisterial acts. We have seen the trajectories of the two schools played out before our very eyes in the magisterium, ars celebrandi, and priorities of each pontificate. It is for this reason that the original Benedictine-Jesuit controversy remains of lively interest and importance for us today, if we would better understand the trials through which the Church is passing in this age. Well, you note that I left that off right in the middle of things, uh, which is intentional. I want to wet your whistle. Uh, I want you to get the books. Um, they're very fine. My own experience coincides very much with what what Peter is talking about, that uh, yielding of our own individuality to the right makes it possible for us, especially as sacred ministers, and uh, certainly all the baptized in the congregation, therefore to be transformed by Christ who is truly the actor 
in the liturgy. Every word, every gesture is his. He uses us through our sacraments, through our sacramental characters, through our baptism, through holy orders, in the uh, celebration of the sacred liturgy. And also that wonderful quote from that uh, abbot um, of Solem about how through the, uh, the liturgical rites, as he says, all the spiritual riches of the church in the past and the present and eternity are, are brought to us. And through these actions, the Holy Spirit will concentrate, eternalize, and diffuse the unchangeable fullness of the act of redemption throughout the whole body of Christ. That's really quite magnificent. Um, on a more jocular note, um, I'm reminded of an old chestnut that floats around in clerical circles about uh, how to measure the success of the liturgies of different uh, religious groups. Um, there are probably variations on this which you might have heard, but uh, the one that comes to mind is that um, for the Benedictines, we have a successful uh, liturgy if more than half the words are sung properly. Uh, for the Dominicans, it's successful if more than half show up. Uh, for Franciscans, if fewer than half are injured, it's successful. And it is successful for the Jesuits if more than half are still there at the end. seven years since my last installment of this. Wow, has time, time has just flown by. But uh, let's see if we can, uh, let's see if we can bring this project to a conclusion in the near future. Um, these stories about this parish priest in a little town in northern Italy near the Po River um, after World War II are absolutely delightful. Um, you might need a little, you know, historical background here. In that time in Italy after World War II, there was a vast struggle going on between uh, political communists and Christian Democrats. And of course, the Christian Democrats were backed by the church. And so there are two groups that face off all the time. The main characters are the parish priest, Don Camillo Tarocci, and his nemesis, the communist mayor of the town, who is nicknamed Beppone. And um, another one of the characters, constant characters in the stories, is the large crucifix in the parish church with whom Don Camillo converses on a regular basis. Uh, these stories bring, bring brilliant insights into the human condition uh, and reflect a great deal of, of common sense. These stories came back to my mind recently because uh, in July, just July 2018, just passed now, there was the 50th anniversary of the author's death. Guareschi died. But his works live on. Uh, he did once quip, I will not die even if they kill me. And uh, so he lives in the words of these stories, which themselves have a great timelessness, a timeless quality, even though they are situated in a specific point in Italian history and geography. Um, about that geography and uh, time, Goreski himself wrote 
about these stories, and I'll quote. The background of these stories is my home, Parma, the Emilian plain along the Po, where political passion often reaches a disturbing intensity, and yet these people are attractive and hospitable and generous, and have a highly developed sense of humor. It must be the sun, a terrible sun, which beats on their brains during the summer, or perhaps it's the fog, a heavy fog which oppresses them during the winter. The people in these stories are true to life, and the stories are so true that more than once, after I had written a story, the thing actually happened, and one read it in the news. So let's hear two of the stories from The Little World of Don Camillo. The first in the series of books by Giovanni Guareschi about this great figure. Today we will turn into two of the stories, The Meeting and On the River Bank. There is one little thing you should note in the uh, first story. Uh, you will hear a term translated directly from Italian, which doesn't make a lot of sense in English. Um, you'll hear someone refer to uh, a priest-eater. Well, there is no cannibalism involved in this. A mangiaprete, or mangiapreti in Italian, is someone who is very anti-clerical. And some of these uh, political parties after the war were quite anti-clerical, and they were trying to take away some of the rights of the church and so forth. And some of these anti-clerical politicians and people were called mangiapreti. A uh, very anti-clerical person. That's what you're supposed to hear when you hear priesty. The Meeting As soon as Peppone read a notice posted at the street corners announcing that a stranger from the city had been invited by the local section of the Liberal Party to hold a meeting in the square... He leapt into the air. Here, in the red stronghold, are we to tolerate such a provocation, he bawled. We'll see who commands here. He then summoned his general staff, and the stupendous announcement was studied and analyzed. The proposal to set fire to the headquarters of the Liberal Party was rejected. That of forbidding the meeting met with the same fate. "'That's democracy for you,' said Peppone sententiously, "'when an unknown scoundrel can speak in a public square.' They decided to remain within the bounds of law and order. General mobilization of all members, organization of squads to supervise things generally and avoid any ambush, occupation of strategic points and protection of their own headquarters, pickets, were to stand by to summon reinforcements from neighboring sectors. "'The fact that they are holding a public meeting here shows that they are confident of overpowering us,' said Peppone, "'but they will not find us unprepared.' Scouts placed along the roads leading to the villages were to report any suspicious movement, and were already on duty from early that Saturday morning, but they failed to sight so much as a cat.' throughout the entire day. During the night, Zmilzo discovered a questionable character on a bike, but he proved to be only a normal drunk. The meeting was to take place Sunday afternoon, 
but up until three o'clock, not a soul showed up. They will be coming on the 355 train, said Pepone, and he placed a large contingent of his men in and around the railroad station. The train steamed in, and the only person who got off was a thin little man carrying a small canvas suitcase. It's obvious they got wind of something and didn't feel strong enough to meet the emergency, said Pepone. At that moment the little man came up to him and, taking off his hand politely, asked if Pepone would be so kind as to direct him to the headquarters of the Liberal Party. Pepone stared at him in amazement. The headquarters of the Liberal Party? Yes, explained the little man. I am due to make a short speech in twenty minutes' time, and I don't want to be late. Everybody was looking at Pepone, and Pepone scratched his head. Uh, it's really rather difficult to explain, because the center of the village is a mile away. The little man looked very unhappy. Is it possible to find some means of transportation? I have a truck outside, muttered Pepone, if you want to come along. The little man thanked him. Then, when they got outside and he saw the truck full of surly faces, red handkerchiefs, and communist badges, he looked at Pepone. I am their leader, said Pepone. Get up in front with me. Halfway to the village, Pepone stopped the engine and examined his passenger, who was a middle-aged gentleman, very thin, and with clear-cut features. So, you are a liberal. I am, replied the gentleman. And you are not alarmed at finding yourself alone here among fifty communists? No, replied the man quietly. A threatening murmur came from the men in the lorry. What have you got in that suitcase? The man began to laugh and opened the case. Pajamas, a pair of slippers, and a toothbrush, he exclaimed. Pepone pushed his hat onto the back of his head and slapped his thigh. "'You must be nuts!' he bellowed. "'Why aren't you afraid?' "'Simply because I am alone, and there are fifty of you,' the little man explained quietly. "'What the hell has that got to do with it?' howled Pepone. "'Doesn't it strike you that I could pick you up with one hand and throw you into that ditch?' "'No, it doesn't strike me,' replied the little man as quietly as before. "'Then you really must be either weak in the head or irresponsible, or out to bait us.' The little man laughed again. "'It is much simpler than that,' he said. "'I'm just an ordinary, decent man.' "'Ah, no, my good sir,' explained Pepone. "'If you were an ordinary, decent man, you wouldn't be an enemy of the people, a slave of reaction, an instrument of capitalism.' I am nobody's enemy and nobody's slave. I am merely a man who thinks differently from you. Pepone started the engine, and the truck lurched forward. I suppose you made your will before coming here, he jeered as he jammed his foot on the accelerator. No, replied the little man unperturbed. All I have is my work, and if I should die, I couldn't leave it to anyone else. Before entering the village, Pepone pulled up for a moment to speak to Smilso, who was acting as orderly on his motorbike. Then, by way of several side streets, they reached the headquarters of the Liberal Party. 
the doors and windows were closed. "'Nobody here,' said Pipponi gloomily. "'They must all be in the square, of course. "'It is already late,' retorted the little man. "'I suppose that's it,' replied Pipponi, winking at Brusco. "'When they reached the square, Pipponi and his men got out of the truck, "'surrounded the little man, and forced their way through the crowd to the platform.' The little man climbed onto it and found himself face to face with two thousand men, all wearing the red handkerchief. He turned to Pipponi, who had followed him onto the platform. Excuse me, he inquired, but have I by any chance come to the wrong meeting? No, Pipponi reassured him. The fact is that there are only twenty-three liberals in the whole district, and they don't show up much in a crowd. To tell you the truth, if I had been in your place— it would never have entered my mind to hold a meeting here. It seems obvious that the liberals have more confidence in the democratic discipline of the communists than you have, replied the little one. Pipponi looked disconcerted for a moment, then he went up to the microphone. Comrades, he shouted, I wish to introduce to you this gentleman who will make you a speech that will send you all off to join the liberal party. A roar of laughter greeted this introduction, and as soon as it died down, the little man began speaking. "'I want to thank your leader for his courtesy,' he said, "'but it is my duty to explain to you that his statement does not express my wishes, because if at the end of my speech you all went to join the Liberal Party, I would feel it an incumbent upon me to go and join the Communist Party, and that would be against all my principles.' He was unable to continue, because at that moment a tomato whistled through the air and struck him in the face. The crowd began jeering, and Pepone turned white. "'Anyone who laughs is a swine!' he shouted into the microphone, and there was immediate silence. The little man had not moved, and was trying to clean his face with his hand. Pepone was a child of instinct, and quite unconsciously was capable of magnificent impulses. He pulled his handkerchief from his pocket, then he put it back again, and unknotted the vast red kerchief from his neck, and offered it to the little man. "'I wore it in the mountains,' he said. "'Wipe your face.' "'Bravo, Pepone!' thundered a voice from the first-floor window of a neighboring house. "'I don't need the approval of the clergy,' replied Pepone arrogantly, while Don Camillo bit his tongue with fury at having let his feelings get the better of him. Meanwhile the little man had shaken his head, bowed, and approached the microphone. "'There is too much history attached to that handkerchief for me to soil it with the traces of a vulgar episode,' that belongs to the less heroic chronicles of our types, he said. A handkerchief such as we use for a common cold suffices for such a purpose. Pepone flushed scarlet, and also bowed, and then a wave of emotion swept the crowd, and there was a vigorous applause, while the hooligan who had thrown the tomato was kicked off the square. The little man resumed his speech calmly. He was quiet, without any trace of bitterness. "'smoothing off corners, avoiding contention. "'At the end he was applauded, "'and when he stepped down from the platform, "'a way was cleared before him. "'When he reached the far end of the square "'and found himself beneath the portico of the town hall, "'he stood helplessly with his suitcase in his hand, "'not knowing 
where to go or what to do. At that moment, Don Camillo hurried up to Peppone, who was standing just behind the man. You've lost no time, have you, you godless rascal, in making up to this liberal priest-eater? What? gasped Peppone, turning toward the little man. Then are you a, a priest-eater? But, stammered the man, hold your tongue, Don Camillo interrupted him. You ought to be ashamed, you who demand a free church in a free state. The little man attempted to protest, but Peppone cut him short before he could utter a word. Bravo, he bawled. Give me your hand. When a man is a priest-eater, he is my friend, even if he is a liberal reactionary. Hurrah, shouted Peppone's satellites. You are my guest, said Peppone. Nothing of the kind, retorted Don Camillo. This gentleman is my guest. I am not a boor who fires tomatoes at his adversaries. Peppone pushed himself menacingly in front of Don Camillo. I have said that he is my guest, he repeated fiercely. And I have said the same thing, replied Don Camillo. It means that if you want to come to blows with me about it, I'll give you those due to your ruffian dynamos. Peppone clenched his fists. Come away, said Brusco. In another minute you'll be boxing with the priest in the public square. The question was settled in favor of a meeting on neutral territory. All three of them went out into the country to luncheon with Gigiotto, a host completely indifferent to politics, and thus even the democratic encounter led to no results of any kind. On the river bank. Between one and three o'clock of an August afternoon, the heat in those fields of hemp and buckwheat can be both seen and felt. It is almost as though a great curtain of boiling glass hung a few inches from your nose. If you cross a bridge and look down into the canal, you find its bed dry and cracked, with here and there a dead fish and when you look at a cemetery from the road along the river-bank, you almost seem to hear the bones rattling beneath the boiling sun. Along the main road you will meet an occasional wagon piled high with sand, with the driver sound asleep, lying face downwards on top of his load, his stomach cool and his spine incandescent, or he will be sitting on the shaft, fishing out pieces from half a watermelon that he holds on his knees like a bowl. Then when you come to the big bank, there lies the great river, deserted, motionless, and silent, like a cemetery of dead waters. Don Camillo was walking in the direction of the big river, with a large white handkerchief inserted between his head and his hat. It was half-past one of an August afternoon, and seeing him thus, alone on the white road, under the burning rays of the sun, it was not possible to imagine anything blacker or more blatantly priest-like. "'If there is anyone within a radius of twenty miles who is not asleep at this moment, I'll eat my hat,' said Don Camillo to himself. Then he climbed over the bank and sat down in the shade of a thicket of acacias and watched the water shining through the foliage. 
Presently he took off his clothes, folding each garment carefully and rolling them all into a bundle which he hid among the bushes. Then, wearing only his underdrawers, he plunged into the water. Everything was perfectly quiet. No one could have seen him, because, in addition to selecting the hour of siesta, he had also chosen the most secluded spot. In any case, he was prudent, and, at the end of a half an hour, he climbed out of the water among the acacias and reached the bush where he had hidden his clothes, only to discover that the clothes were no longer there. Don Camillo felt his breath fail him. There could be no question of theft. Nobody could possibly want an old faded cassock. It must mean that some deviltry was afoot, and, in fact, at that very moment he heard voices approaching from the top of the bank. He made out a crowd of young men and girls, and then he recognized Zmiltso as their leader, and was seized with an almost uncontrollable desire to break a branch from the acacias and use it on their backs. But he realized that he would only be playing into the hands of his adversaries, letting them enjoy the spectacle of Don Camillo in his drawers. So he dived back into the water, and, swimming beneath the surface, reached a little island in the middle of the river. Creeping ashore, he disappeared among the reeds. Although his enemies hadn't seen him land, they flung themselves down along the bank and lay waiting for him laughing and singing. Don Camillo was in a state of siege. Don Camillo sat among the reeds and waited. Peppone, followed by Brusco, Biggio, and his entire staff, arrived and Smilso explained the situation with gestures. There was much laughter. Then more people came, and Don Camillo realized that the mayor's party were out to make him pay dearly. They had hit upon the best system of all, because, when anyone makes himself ridiculous, nobody is ever afraid of him again, not even if his fists weigh a ton and he represents the Eternal Father. Don Camillo felt it was grossly unfair, because he had never wanted to frighten anyone except the devil, but somehow politics had contrived so to distort facts that the communists had come to consider the parish priest as their enemy, and to say that if things were not as they wished, it was all the fault of the priests. When things go wrong, it sometimes seems less important to find a remedy than to find a scapegoat. Lord, said Don Camillo, I am ashamed to address you in my underdrawers, but my position is becoming serious and if it is not a mortal sin for a poor parish priest who is dying of the heat to go bathing, please help me, because I am quite unable to help myself. The watchers had brought flasks of wine, baskets of food, and an accordion, and it was obvious that they hadn't the faintest intention of raising the siege. In fact, they had extended it so that they spread along the river's bank up to the ford. Here the shore was covered with scrub and underbrush, not a soul had set foot in this area since 1945, because the retreating Germans had mined both sides of the bank at the ford. The authorities, after several disastrous attempts at removing the mines, finally isolated the area with posts and barbed wire. 
Therefore, that section of the shore upstream from Don Camilo was well guarded by a minefield, and he knew that if he swam downstream, beyond Peponi's men, he would end up in the middle of the village. So, Don Camilo did not move. He remained lying on the damp earth, chewing a reed and sorting out his thoughts. Well, he concluded, a respectable man remains a respectable man, even in his drawers. If he performs some reputable action, then his clothing ceases to have any importance. The daylight was beginning to fade, and the watchers on the bank lit torches and lanterns. As soon as the underbrush was veiled in shadow, Don Camilo slid into the water and made his way cautiously upstream until his feet touched bottom at the ford. Then he struck out for the bank, lifting his mouth out of the water from time to time to catch his breath. He reached for the shore, but now the problem was to get out of the water without being seen. Once among the bushes, he could easily reach the bank, and by running along it, duck between rows of vines and through the buckwheat and sow his own garden. He grabbed a bush and pulled himself up slowly. But just as he was almost out, the bush came up by the roots, and Don Camilo was back in the water. At the splash, people came running. But in a flash, Don Camilo leapt ashore and vanished among the bushes. There were loud cries, and the entire crowd rushed toward the spot, and the moon rose to shed its light on the spectacle. "'Don Camilo!' shouted Pipponi, thrusting his way to the front of the crowd. "'Don Camilo!' There was no reply and a deathly silence fell upon all those present. "'Don Camilo!' yelled Pipponi again. "'For God's sake, don't move! You are in the minefield!' "'I know I am,' replied the voice of Don Camilo quietly, from behind a small shrub in the midst of the sinister shrubbery. Zmilzo came forward carrying a bundle. "'Don Camilo!' he shouted. "'It was a rotten trick! Keep still, and here are your clothes!' "'My clothes?' Oh, thank you, Zmilzo, if you would be so kind as to bring them to me. A branch moved at the top of a bush some distance away. Zmilzo's mouth fell open, and he looked around at those behind him. The silence was broken only by an ironical laugh from Don Camilo. Pepone seized the bundle from Zmilzo's hand. I'll bring them, said Pepone, advancing slowly toward the posts and the barbed wire. He had one leg over the barrier when Zmilzo sprang forward and dragged him back. No, chief, said Zmilzo, taking the bundle from him and entering the enclosure. I will. The people shrank back. Their faces were damp with sweat, and they held their hands over their mouths. Amid a leaden silence, Zmilzo made his way slowly toward the middle of the enclosure, placing his feet carefully. Here you are said Zmilzo, in a ghost of a voice, as he reached Don Camilo's bush. Good, muttered Don Camilo, and now you can come round here. You have earned the right to see me in my drawers. Zmilzo obeyed him. Well, and what do you think of a parish priest in drawers? I don't know, stammered Zmilzo. I've stolen trifles, and I've socked a couple of guys, but I never really hurt anyone. Ego te absolvo, replied Don Camillo, making the sign of the cross on his forehead. 
They walked slowly toward the bank, and the crowd held its breath and waited for the explosion. They climbed over the barbed wire and walked along the road, Camillo leading and Zmilzo at his heels, still walking on tiptoe as if in the minefield, because he no longer knew what he was doing. Suddenly Zmilzo collapsed on the ground. Pepone, leading the rest of the people, picked Zmilzo up by the collar as he went by and dragged him along like a bundle of rags, without once taking his eyes from Don Camillo's back. At the church door, Don Camillo turned around for a moment, bowed politely to his parishioners, and went into the church. The others left in silence, and Peppone remained standing alone before the church, staring at the closed door and still clutching the collar of the unconscious Zmilzo. Then he shook his head and turned and went his way, still dragging his burden. Lord, whispered Don Camillo, one must serve the church even by protecting the dignity of a parish priest in his drawers. There was no reply. Lord, whispered Don Camillo anxiously, did I really commit a mortal sin by going swimming? No, replied Christ, but you did commit a mortal sin when you dared Zmilzo to bring you your clothes. I never thought he would do it. I was thoughtless. From the direction of the river came the sound of a distant explosion. Every now and then a rabbit runs through the minefield, and then, Don Camillo explained in an almost inaudible voice, so we must conclude that you... You must conclude nothing at all, Don Camillo, Christ interrupted him with a smile. With the temperature you are running at this moment, your conclusions would scarcely be of any value. Meanwhile, Pepone had reached the door of Zmilzo's home. He knocked, and the door was opened by an old man who made no comment as Pepone handed over his burden. And it was at that moment that Pepone also heard the explosion, shook his head, and remembered many things. Then he took Zmilzo back from the old man for a moment and boxed his ears until his hair stood on end. Forward! Charge, murmured Smilso in a faraway voice, as the old man took him again. And there we have a couple more stories from the little world of Don Camilo, uh, delightful stories of Giovanni Goreschi. Uh, I particularly enjoyed reading that one about the river, because as I read it, it is indeed a hot, hot, humid August afternoon. Sunny, high humidity, and tonight I hope to see the tears of St. Lawrence weep from the constellation Perseus, but I will not be down by the river. Thank you for listening. This is Father John Zolsdorf. Please pray for me as I pray for you.